0: Job chapter 28, uh, earlier in our study through the book of Job, we've, we've seen Job lose virtually everything. Uh, in a moment in time, he finds himself poverty-stricken, destitute, disease-ridden, at death's door uh, with the loss of position, the loss of respect, uh, even the loss of his children. Job is at the extremity of human suffering. And the greatest torment upon Job now is the sense that he has lost God, his greatest treasure. And the question screaming from Job is why? And it's the question that all of us ask in our deepest pain. So let's turn to the Scriptures this morning for help. If you would please stand with me now in honor of the reading of the holy and inspired Word of our God. Job chapter 28. The Holy Spirit says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path, no bird of prey knows. And the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden in it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me, cannot be bought for gold. And silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold and glass cannot equal it. Nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it. Nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, This wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and appointed the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding. Let's pray together. Our great and heavenly God. Holy is your name, and you are God alone. And Father, would you give us this morning ears to hear the wisdom of the Lord. It is wisdom that we desperately need, above all other things. Father, I pray for those this morning who are going through... Various kinds of trials and various kinds of of difficulties and and people who come into this place this morning bearing various kinds of burdens and suffering in various kinds of ways. Father, I pray that you would bestow wisdom upon these this morning, wisdom from God in how to navigate troubled waters. Thank you for your word and now we are ready to receive your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's been said that it's not suffering that breaks us as much as it is suffering that we don't understand. Suffering that seems senseless. Suffering that seems purposeless. And when the suffering comes and the darkness descends and the torment increases, the natural and most pressing question that screams in our heads and in our hearts is the question, why? Over and over again in our sermon series these past few weeks, we've seen Job express his emotional turmoil and anguish, demanding to know why, demanding to know uh, what's happening, demanding to know why God, who was his friend, is now, seems to be treating him as a bitter enemy. And as Job screams out why, Job's three friends have been saying, it's simple, Job, you're suffering because you're an unrepentant sinner. If you do good, God will give you a great life and lots of prosperity and comfort. If you're bad, God will give you what you deserve, which is punishment, and he'll do it quickly. And therefore, therefore, Job, they're saying, since your suffering is very great, it means that your sin is very great. So just repent from that sin, and everything will be fine. But Job knows that's not the answer. We know that it's not the answer as we've been reading through this book. Job's suffering is not because of any past sins that he's committed. And and, and that's, I think, a part of what's confusing to Job because I think at least initially he shared the same kind of theology as his friends, but now that theological system is being totally undermined. And surely to Job it seems now that the very fabric of the universe is falling apart and that things are out of control. He's beginning, I think, to question God's government of the universe. Is he running things right here? Everything that he has believed is being challenged, and he can't handle that. And so, as we've seen in prior weeks, a very fierce, uh, vicious, raging debate has erupted between Job and his three friends. They all grapple with the question, why? By the time you get through chapter 27, the debate has gotten very ugly, with name-calling, and personal attacks, and a very hostile tone. If you've been, as I've encouraged you to do on your own, be reading through the book of Job, and you've seen that. They're calling each other windbags. They're telling each other to shut up. They're, They're not much unlike us when we get into heated debates with other people. And so, neither side at this time has come close to persuading the other, Neither side is budging, They're all, everybody's digging in their heels, and so by the time you get to the end of chapter 27, we've reached an impasse in the debate. And then comes chapter 28, which is the most unusual chapter in the whole book, because it comes totally out of left field, so it seems. You got this talk about mining, and animals, and the weather, Where, where's this coming from? What's this got to do with the book of Job? Job. What's this got to do with the debate between Job and his three friends? Now, your chapter headings may attribute chapter 28 to the voice of Job. I bet you most of your Bibles do. But you need to know that your chapter headings are not inspired. Did you know that? The, the Holy Spirit did not inspire the chapter headings. Or, or the chapter and verse divisions. Divisions. And a number of scholars believe that this is actually not Job talking in chapter 28 uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. It has no smooth literary connection with the immediate context before or after. It contains no accusations or complaints, no responses to anything previously said. As a matter of fact, it has a very reflective, um, contemplative, even tranquil tone which is very much unlike what comes before chapter 28 And what comes after chapter 28. And I tend to agree. I don't think this is Job speaking. This instead is a poem inserted into the middle of this story by the author of Job. Now uh, most of the book of Job is poetry. So this is a poem within a poem. And the purpose of this poem is to help us to take a breather in the midst of of the supercharged, highly emotional debate between Job and his I, I've heard it uh, described or, or compared to uh, the, the ancient, Greek cor- ancient Greek plays, ancient Greek tragedies where at so, some point in the middle of the play, the, the attention of the audience is directed away from the, the players on stage and directed to a, a chorus, maybe in the, in the back of the stage or maybe off to the side and they're, they're singing and they're chanting something they're outside of the story. And, 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 they're, and they're speaking words or singing words that are giving the audience something to, to think about in the midst of the, of the story. And I think the author of Job wants us to step back from the scene for a moment and contemplate things in light of where the story has been up to this point. And I think he's preparing us for where the story is headed. So let's take a, a look at this fascinating poem. And let's remember the context of this is Job's suffering and the question, Why? Job desperately needs wisdom. Why is this happening? Is the universe totally topsy-turvy? Is there any meaning in this? Maybe if I could just understand this, I could bear it. And no wisdom has come from his friends. This poem is pretty easy to divide into uh, the four points. So here's a a little uh, preview of where we're going this morning. Uh, In this poem, the, the author describes in the first 11 verses the difficult search for valuable treasure... You'll see these in the bulletin in your notes, too. Uh, the next section, uh, verses 12 through 22, an impossible search for priceless treasure. And then verse 23 through 27, we'll see the source of the treasure. And then finally, the key to the treasure in verse 28. So let's look at the, the first part of this, the difficult search for valuable treasure. The first part of the poem is is beautiful and and fascinating. And I think what we have here is one of the earliest descriptions of mining in the ancient world that that we have on record. And the poem begins by talking about a search for something of extraordinary value and the danger and the difficulty that comes with that search, but it's worth the search. So look at verse 1 in your Bibles. Surely there is a mine for silver... And a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. So right away the poet draws our attention to things of immense value. But this treasure lay in a place underground. A dark place, a dangerous place, a place of loneliness and potential suffering. The poem takes our imagination into the deep places of the earth. Look at verse 3. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. It says, Man puts an end to deep darkness. That simply means that he's penetrating into deep and dark places. He'd have some sort of, of light with him, maybe a torch or a lantern. He's going deeper and deeper out to the farthest limits in the gloom and deep darkness. And what amazing poetry! This is. That makes me wish I I knew fluent Hebrew... ...because I'm sure it's even more beautiful in the original language. Now, the careful reader of Job is going to notice this emphasis on darkness. And that's something that's come up before in the book of Job. Job knows something about darkness. About being in the place of darkness where there is no light... ...and he has no understanding. And here in chapter 28, the poet has taken us into a world... ...full of darkness and puzzles... ...and hidden perplexities... ...and things that are hard to understand. And yet... ...there lies treasures... ...of great value... ...somewhere in that darkness. But it's hard to find. It reminds us of things that Job... ...said earlier. Job back in chapter 23... uh, ...cried out, oh that I knew... ...where I might find him. Here in chapter 28... ...the poet describes a search... ...a quest... That is dangerous and lonely and difficult. There are treasures to be found by the miner for sure, but they aren't easily found. And again, reading this poem in, in the context of the whole book, this search reminds us of Job. Who's not simply suffering, but he's searching. He's searching. He's desperately searching in great loneliness and confusion. He's searching to understand the answer to the question, why? And it's interesting that the poem now also emphasizes loneliness. Look down at verse 4. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. So the explorer is far away from settlements. He's far away from travelers. He's off the main road. He's off the beaten path. He is totally and utterly alone. But this passage not only emphasizes the loneliness but also celebrates the technological know-how, uh, the courage, and the persistence of man. He's opening shafts and valleys. Look at the end of verse 4. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. And you can just imagine these men that, that, that they've been lowered in deep into the earth on ropes, hanging in midair, maybe on, on, on some sort of... of uh, you know, some harness or something and uh, perhaps in some sort of little cage as they're descending down. Some of you are claustrophobic and just imagining that would make you cringe. Now look at verse 5. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. Here the poet's referring to agriculture. He's comparing it to mining. Farming is relatively easy. Bread comes out of the earth, but the search for hidden treasure is difficult and even violent. Out of the earth comes bread, but then look at verse 5, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. This probably would describe an ancient mining technique of of heating up the rock, and then you'd pour water onto the hot rock and it cracks. It's a a primitive form of explosives. Verse 6 reminds us again of the rewards of such a difficult search. Look at verse 6, its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold and and here again is a celebration of human ingenuity and the uniqueness of man. Look at verse 7. The, uh, the path no bird of prey knows and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beast have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. We see things that animals cannot see. We do things animals cannot do. We accomplish and understand things that they will never know. Look at verse 9. Man puts his... Hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. What an amazing thing it is to be a human being, made in the image of God, able to go places and do things that the falcon and the lion couldn't even dream of. And it seems that 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 we can accomplish just about anything. We have lots of know-how. But the big question in the book of Job is not know-how but know-why. That's Job's dilemma. It's the question why. And that's why after this talk of mining and searching and exploring and seeking out hidden things the poet then asked in verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding And this poet about, in this poem about mining, we're meant to see a parallel between a search in the natural domain and a greater and deeper search in the cosmic domain. So this poem is all about the search for wisdom, the search for wisdom. And, and what is wisdom? Wisdom is understanding. In Old Testament imagery, wisdom can, can mean something like the architecture of the universe, the blueprints of the universe, the blueprints of all reality. It says in Proverbs 3.19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So wisdom is the fundamental order according to which the universe is constructed. And while that would include things like the, the laws of science and physics, there's also a hidden unseen metaphysical moral divine order to the universe and the believer has the firm conviction that the universe is not random and chaotic but instead is built upon this order and that there is an unseen order and logic both to visible and invisible reality and that my friends is a conviction that is being seriously challenged in Job's mind right now by his present trial because he's not seeing any order To him, everything seems out of whack and senseless and upside down, arbitrary, topsy-turvy. And he wants to figure out why this is all happening. And to have supreme wisdom, to have all the wisdom that there is to have would be to understand everything. It would be to unlock the doors on all the mysteries, all the things that you and I are in the dark about. To have complete wisdom would be to have a total understanding of all things... ...including your pain and suffering. And that's what Job wants. And that's what Job's friends think they have. But they don't have it. Job knows that. And so he's on this lonely quest for wisdom. For the answers. So there's a difficult search for valuable treasure. And then the poet moves on and describes an impossible search for priceless treasure... The poet has spent much time talking about the the search for hidden treasure under the earth and the difficulty in getting it. But, But the value of wisdom far exceeds that of the most precious metal or jewel in the world and it's even more difficult to get. In fact, it's impossible. Look at verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. In other words, you can search anywhere you want in the natural world, and you won't find it. Continuing in verse 12, the deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not with me. You've got the, the poet personifying the depths of the sea. Never mind searching down in a mine shaft. We're going all the way down to the very bottom of the ocean. And we find ourselves consulting with the sea, which in the ancient world was often associated with deep mystery and chaos and fear. Surely, if we could penetrate down to the bottom of the sea, we get down to the bottom then of all of our questions. But the sea looks at us blankly and says, sorry, friend, I got nothing for you. I I know nothing about this wisdom thing. And after our deep sea dive, we find ourselves sitting back on the ash heap with Job in suffering. None the wiser. And the question of why remains unanswered. The quest for wisdom seems vain and futile. And yet, despite its impossibility to find, we are teased with the pricelessness of wisdom. Look at verse 15. It cannot be bought for gold... And silver cannot be weighed at its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Bill Gates doesn't have the money to buy this wisdom. The most powerful men in the world don't have the ability to lay hold on it. And unlike the miner searching for material treasure, the ingenuity and technology and cleverness of man cannot discern it. The stubborn and persistent miner, if he's intelligent enough and capable enough and strong enough and searches deep enough, he can find some gold. But the one who seeks to fully understand the blueprints... The architecture of the universe, you can search as far and as deep into the cosmos itself and you will come away empty-handed. And to emphasize this, the poet now personifies two of the greatest and most fearsome cosmic forces in the universe, destruction and death. That's what Abaddon is here, destruction. If anyone knew about wisdom, surely death and destruction would. They've been around in business for so long, right? they, They must know. They must be able to help us out. Look at verse 22. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. In other words, you, you ask these ancient forces about wisdom, and they'll look at you, and they'll scratch their heads, and they'll shrug their shoulders and say, Wisdom? Oh, yes, I think a long time ago I heard something about that from a friend of a friend who had a second cousin somewhere who mentioned something about it from a guy he once knew. And, um, uh, sorry, I guess I can't help you at all. Now, let's remember, the poet wants us to stop and think. Job and his friends have been arguing about the meaning Of Job's suffering. They're grasping for wisdom. Job wants access to the blueprints of the universe that will unlock the door to the problem of his suffering. And the poet is leading us, you and I, to step back from the drama of the angry debate to reflect on all of this, not just for the sake of knowing how to respond to Job's dilemma, but also for the sake of considering the unanswered questions in our own lives, including our suffering. So, now where's this going? Poets leading us somewhere, right? But by the time you get to verse 22, it seems like he's led us into a brick wall. Wisdom is so precious and so valuable and so needed. And yet, our ingenuity and our prowess and our abilities as human beings to obtain it will prove in vain. The search for wisdom and our own strength is in vain. But there is hope. As we move on to the third section of the poem, which is the source of the treasure. Notice in verse 12, the poet asks, where is wisdom found? But then in verse 20, he words it a little differently, doesn't he? Look look at it and see how the poet words it. He doesn't say, where is wisdom found? He says, where does wisdom come from? And that's a different question. You see, when I ask, where is wisdom found, I'm asking, can I find it through my own prowess and ingenuity and technology? And the answer is no. But the second question, where does wisdom come from, is asking about the source of wisdom. And in that is implied another question, can I receive from the source? Can I receive wisdom from that source? And the answer is yes. The point is that man does not get wisdom through reason, but through revelation. Wisdom must be revealed by God. Look at verse 23. God understands and knows wisdom. God understands the way to it and He knows its place, it says. He, and He knows these things because He's the source of wisdom. Uh, Daniel chapter 2 verse 20 says, Praise the name of God forever and ever for He has all wisdom. And so if God has all wisdom... The only way we can have wisdom is for us to receive it from the source. He's got to reveal wisdom to us. C.S. Lewis was still alive when the first Russian cosmonaut went into outer space. And after the cosmonaut returned, Khrushchev, who was the Russian leader at that time, he was doing a speech on on the glories of atheism. And at one point he said we sent a cosmonaut into space and he went up into heaven and guess what? There was no God there. And C.S. Lewis wrote a response and said, if there is a creator God, we wouldn't relate to him as a person on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor. That would be impossible. We would instead relate to God the way Shakespeare relates to a character in one of his plays. In other words, if Hamlet wants to know something about Shakespeare, he will learn nothing by going up into the rafters and looking. If if Hamlet's going to know anything about Shakespeare, it's only going to be because Shakespeare writes some information about himself into the play. In other words, it has to be revealed to Hamlet. Hamlet can't find out otherwise. Same thing is true with us. If you and I are going to learn anything about the most important things in life about this grand epic drama that you and I are in we are not gonna learn it through our own reason by going up into the rafters so to speak instead we need God to reveal wisdom by bringing it down to us and he has it's called the Word of God the Bible and what what is the Bible revealed to us well let's keep looking look at the next few verses let's start again in verse 23 God understands the way to it and he knows its place. And then look at what the poet does next. The poet directs our attention to one of the most uncontrollable and seemingly random facets of the created world, namely the weather. You know, even with our advanced technology and satellites and weather sensors, I'm still amazed by how often weathermen can get it wrong. Aren't you? And the, the, the weather... A lot of times it just seems random and seems arbitrary. Well, the weatherman said this was going to happen. And, and, and instead, the exact opposite is happening. It seems out of control. It Seems untamable. And yet, look at this in verse 25. When he gave to the wind its weight and appointed the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it. And searched it out. Those things that seem arbitrary and random and out of control to us, they're not. There's an order and a logic and a purpose behind everything. You may not see it. But look at verse 24. What does God see? He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And the things that are happening in the world, whether that be the weather or Job's suffering... They're not happening outside of the sphere of God's control. A God who is not only all sovereign and all powerful, but also all wise. We'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead. But that's something that Job and all desperate sufferers need to know. We have a God who is all sovereign, and we have a God who is all wise. We've looked at a valuable treasure and a difficult search, a priceless treasure and an impossible search. We've been told about the source of the treasure, but how about the key? That's what we want, right? We want the key to the treasure. And of course, you figured out by now that treasure is a metaphor for the wisdom of God. Now, verse 27 is actually the end of the poem in the Hebrew. Verse 28 is actually a prose postscript. It doesn't share the poetic meter of the other verses. And as the poem ends, our hope is raised because we've been told that God is the source of wisdom. He knows the way to its place. Maybe God will take us there. Maybe he'll open our eyes and show us the blueprints to the universe, the architecture of the cosmos, and all of our agonizing questions will be answered and fully satisfied. And now that the poem is over, God opens his mouth. And this is the first time God speaks directly to man in the book of Job. We're on the edge of our seat. We are ready for wisdom. And what is the wisdom that Job and you and I need the most? God tells us in verse 28. He said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, I want you to be honest with me. Isn't that disappointing? Were you hoping for something more than that? Does such a response make you mad or sad? How we respond to verse 28 is a litmus test for our hearts. And if we react negatively to verse 28, it says more about us than it does about God. Now, what's God doing here? God is directing our attention away from our agonizing questions, and he's drawing our gaze towards himself. We want God, this is what we want, we want God to take us by the hand, to lead us to that place that has all the answers. Instead, God is beckoning us, in verse 28, to simply bow before him. He who knows all the answers to all the questions, but he chooses not to tell us. God wants to take our eyes off the architecture of the universe and instead put our eyes on the person of the architect and walk in fellowship with him. That's what it means to fear God, to walk with him, to be devoted to him. Uh, We've been talking about treasure this morning. To fear God means to regard him as your treasure above all other things, even above the answers to your questions. And that, God says, is wisdom. And God has determined in his wisdom that in your pain and suffering, in the challenges of life you face, in your difficulties, that what you need most is not in personal facts about every aspect of the blueprints of the universe. Instead, what you need most is a personal relationship with God. Knowing a bunch of cold answers will not satisfy and sustain you through your suffering, but knowing God will. And so if we really want wisdom in our suffering, the wise person will stop banging his head against the wall trying to figure out all the answers... Doesn't mean that you can't be curious, doesn't mean you can't ask questions, but there will be much that God will not reveal to you and somehow, somehow guys, you and I have to learn how to be okay with not knowing all the answers and be okay with simply knowing God. God says that is wisdom. And honestly, I think sometimes we're not okay with that. Sometimes we're not okay with not knowing because we don't trust God. Sometimes we question God, not so much as we're curious, but because we don't trust Him. We don't trust that He knows what He's doing with our lives. We don't think He's doing a good job being in charge of our life. We don't think that He's, he's doing a good job being the supreme governor of the universe. And we think our idea and our plan and our script is better than His. To just trust God with the things we don't know... And to be content in our ignorance requires us to release full control to a God who won't let us in on everything that he's doing. And yet the scriptures tell us if we really want to be wise, that's exactly what we'll do. Now listen, there is a type of wisdom that is revealed. Read the book of Proverbs and you'll see that kind of wisdom all over the place. Read that wisdom. Receive that wisdom. Apply that wisdom. But then... There is a type of wisdom and knowledge that is off limits to us. One of my favorite verses uh, dealing with this is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Which says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So you've got two kinds of, of knowledge. You've got the things that have been revealed, but then there are secret things that God's not going to tell you about. All of the knowledge about the universe is like a gigantic house with thousands of rooms. And we're in that house, and many of those doors are unlocked. And we can go in and we can explore and learn about whatever's on the other side of that door. God invites us to do that, God welcomes us to do that. There are doors that on the other side contain answers about the natural world and science. And scientific inquiry is the key that can unlock those doors. There are doors that on the other side contain answers about the spiritual realm. And you'll find that the Bible contains keys to unlock many of those doors. But then there are many other rooms in the house. Many other doors that are locked and bolted shut. And we don't have the keys. And God has denied us access into those rooms. And we can pound and we can kick And we can shout and we can bang our heads against those doors as much as we want. And and as much as we want to know what's on the other side of of that door, we're not allowed to enter. We're not permitted. Those are the secret things that belong to the Lord. And we need to trust that God is wise enough to know what doors to, to let us into. And he's wise enough to know which doors should remain locked. And our satisfaction and strength And times of suffering must come from knowing and loving and fearing God. Bible says that is wisdom. You know, God doesn't even let Job in on all of his plans. God never explains everything to Job, not even in the back of the book. God doesn't say, okay, now Job, what you need to know is is, is that, you know, 41 chapters ago, I had this conversation with the devil, and then he said this, and I said this, and this is how it it all He, he doesn't reveal those things to Job. Man is not going to be privy to all of God's doings. And that's okay. Because life for you is not about knowing all the answers, it's about knowing God. The greatest tragedy in life is not the person who doesn't know all the answers. The greatest tragedy in life is the person who does not know the one who does indeed know all the answers. The person who can't rest in assurance that they're in a relationship with God, a God who's in control and knows what he's doing, even when, from our perspective, things seem random and arbitrary and out of control. Job, in his suffering, needs to continue to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. That's what it says in verse 28. The fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. It's very interesting. If you look at Job chapter 1, as it's describing Job, how does it describe Job? That he fears God and he turns away from evil. Job was a wise man. He was doing the right thing all along. And here the poet is telling us in 28, Job needs to continue to do that. He needs to stay on, on course to continue to fear God and turn away from evil. He needs to seek to know God and be in relationship with him more than Job needs to know all of the answers. And guess what? That's exactly what you and I need to do as well. And that's actually easier for you and for me than it was for Job. You can know God in a way that Job never could. You're like, are you serious? Job was like the godliest man in the world at that time. How can I know God in a way that Job didn't? You know, in that illustration about Shakespeare and Hamlet, I'm reminded that God didn't just write down some information about himself to us, the characters in his story. He did even more. He wrote himself into the story. He, He stepped into your story. And to my story, He became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who turns out to be the ultimate revelation of the wisdom of God. book of Colossians chapter 2 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This same Jesus entered into the story of humanity. And He entered into humanity's suffering. And what do we see in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus? We we see a man who was like Job in many ways, but even greater. Jesus perfectly feared God and turned away from evil. The Bible says that Jesus, who was infinitely rich, became poor. And Jesus, we see a righteous man undergo immense physical and spiritual suffering. If Job was taken to the limit of suffering, Jesus went far beyond that limit. Jesus went through darkness and loneliness and experienced great anguish in his heart. And to everyone else around, it looked like chaos ruled the day. It looked looked like everything was out of control. It seemed unfair and arbitrary and it seemed like the universe itself was topsy-turvy and nothing made sense to even Jesus' closest disciples. And surely his disciples were groping for wisdom and understanding in the darkness because from their perspective, all was unraveling and nothing made sense. And Jesus himself, though he knew the plan, dreaded the cross. He dreaded the suffering that was to come and even prayed that it would not happen if there be another way. But because he really knew and trusted his Father, and because in his wisdom he feared God and turned away from evil, he committed himself into the hands of his Father, who he knew was not only all-sovereign and all-powerful, but also all-wise. God knew exactly ...what he was doing. Because through his sufferings, Jesus provided payment for the sins of wicked rebels like us. So that whoever trusts in Jesus could actually do what Job 28 urges us to do. Which is to know God. We can't know God apart from Jesus dealing with our sins. And Jesus dealt with our sins on the cross to bridge that separation between man and God. And so, while to his disciples it seemed like the cross was senseless, senseless suffering, purposeless suffering, and to the world, Jesus hanging naked and bleeding on a cross seemed so foolish, the cross turns out instead to be at the heart of the wisdom of God, the heart of his wise plans for the universe Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. And it's in the gospel... In the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that the fundamental structure, the architecture of the universe, is revealed as in no other way. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. So if you want true wisdom in your life, in your sufferings, in good times and in difficult times, if you really want to bear up under the pain and trials of your own life, the answer is not to know all the answers. The answer is not to bank your hopes on figuring it all out and unraveling all the mysteries and solving all the puzzles. Good luck with that. It'll never happen. The answer is not to know facts, but to know a person. To know God as revealed in Jesus Christ. That is wisdom. Amen? In a moment, we will observe communion, which is a powerful reminder of how we get to know God in the first place. And so as we eat the bread, we are declaring, yes, we have been saved because of the broken body of Christ on the cross. And as we drink the grape juice, we're declaring, yes, our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. He bore the punishment that we deserved. He took the wrath in our place. So now that all who believe in Jesus, all who trust in Jesus, can be made right with God and have all of their sins forgiven, past, present, and future If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ and you do not know much about this gospel that I've been talking about, man, I would love to talk to you more about it after the service or Pastor Steve, I know Pastor Steve would be excited and a lot of folks here actually, it would make their day if you came up to them and said, I want to know more about Jesus. Seriously. So take us up on that. Through our faith, we are saved by Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would receive the wisdom of God, which means that we would receive Christ. I pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters here this morning who are going through suffering, who are going through trials, and who have many, many questions. And and it's okay to have questions, but there is a point where we need to set the questions aside and where we need to find our rest, not in knowing the answers, but in knowing you. Father, would you help us all to be growing in our contentment in Christ? Oh, that's so hard. It's so hard for me to do that. I find every day a million things that I could be angry about, be bitter about, complain about, grumble about. Father, will you kill that kind of sin in my life? And and in the lives of my, my friends here. And help us to turn our eyes on Jesus and look full into his wonderful face. And then we will experience the things of this world growing strangely dim. In the light of your glory and your grace. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.